if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've got to together, surrender our lives, say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast, with teaching from David Platt. Welcome back to the Radical Together podcast. If you've been following with us for the past few weeks, David Platt has been teaching us about what he calls gospel threads or truths that you can share with people in order to weave the gospel into everyday conversations. In the first week, we heard how God is already at work around us and how to join him in that work. And we heard what God is like, namely his character and attributes so that we may rightly present him to others. And last week, we listened to David teach on the sinfulness of man and man's dire need of a Savior and Redeemer. You can listen to each of these previous sermons right in your podcast app or by visiting our website, Radical.net. Today, we'll discover that at the cross, God expresses His judgment upon sin, endures His judgment against sin, and enables salvation for sinners. If this idea is new to you and you are unfamiliar with the gospel or the good news of Christ, or even if you are familiar, this is the foundation for what we believe as Christians. Here's David with a sermon entitled, The Sufficiency of Christ, from 1 Peter. If you have his word, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to 1 John chapter 3. So not the gospel of John, but the first letter that... We have from John, so if you want to turn in your Bible to the end, you'll find Revelation and just take a left a few books back and you'll come to 1 John. So our hope is that tonight, even as we talk about sharing the gospel, we we hope that you will see and hear and sense, maybe for the first time, God's love for you in Christ and that even tonight you might put your faith in Him to restore you to God. And I realize that as soon as I say that, that leads to the follow-up question. Well, why do I have to put my faith in Jesus in order to be restored to God? And why do I need to be restored to God in the first place? And those are good questions that lead us right into what we're talking about tonight. So over the last couple of weeks, and this will catch you up to speed if you've not been here the last couple of weeks. If you have been here, this will recap and summarize all that we've covered Over the last few weeks, our goal has been to establish the divine and human dilemma, meaning this is the ultimate dilemma for all mankind according to the perspective of God. So the ultimate question in all the world. And I know that's a bold statement. I'm about to give you the ultimate question in all the world. But I believe it is. The ultimate question in all the world is this. How can a holy God save rebellious sinners who are due his judgment? How can a holy God save rebellious sinners who are due his judgment? Now this question flows from everything we've talked about the last few weeks. I draw your attention to the back of this threads booklet. So on the right there, number one, God is holy. Creator God is perfectly pure, absolutely, infinitely good. He is Isaiah chapter 43 verse 15 says he is the Lord, the Holy One, our Creator. Yet number two, we have rebelled against this God. Romans 3.12. We have all, every single one of us, we have all turned 
from God to ourselves. For many, that's manifested in self-indulgence in the things of this world. For others, it's manifested in self-righteousness and religious attempts to earn the favor of God. But all of those are, are evidence of our turning away from God to ourselves. And as a result, three, we are separated from God. We have Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. One sin against an infinitely holy God warrants infinite separation from God. Now, some might say, oh, I thought God was loving. God certainly would just bring us back to himself. Well, yes, he's infinitely loving, which we'll get to in a moment. But number four, God is just. And as a just judge, as a good judge, God by his very nature must say to the innocent, you are innocent, and must say to the guilty, you are guilty. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, God justifies the innocent and God condemns the guilty because he's a good judge. So we stand guilty before holy God who is just and therefore we deserve the payment for sin, which leads to number five, they're dead. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says the payment for sin is death. Eventual physical death in this world as a result of sin and ultimate, etern- ultimately eternal spiritual death and eternity separated from God. This is bad news. This is eternally bad news for every one of us in this room. And thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Number six, God is gracious. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And God desires to show free and unmerited favor to the guilty. And so you put all this together, then you come to this dilemma, this ultimate question. How can a holy God save? How can he show love to rebellious sinners who are due his judgment? So we deserve his judgment in our sin. He's just, and by his very character, he must pour out his judgment upon our sins. So feel the underlying tension here. How can God express his holy justice without condemning us in our sin? Which is what his holy justice warrants. If we are not condemned before God as guilty for our sin, then God would be neither holy nor just. He would not be a good judge. He would certainly not be a just judge. Don't don't miss this. Once we really begin to understand the character of who God is and the reality of who we are, then we no longer find it difficult to wonder why God finds it difficult to forgive our sins. We start asking how God finds it possible to forgive our sins. The tension goes on. How can God express His holy justice without condemning us in our sin? And how can God express His holy love without condoning us in our sin. God is love. Yes, just as He's infinitely just, He's also infinitely loving. So how can God love us, save us, when His just character necessitates condemning us? Do you feel the tension here? This is the fundamental problem of the universe. Now, it's not the problem that most people normally identify, you think about it, how many people in our culture are worried today about how God can be just and loving towards sinners at the same time? Not many. There's not a lot of people losing sleep at night over how God can love us. In fact, it's just the opposite. Most people are pointing the finger at God, saying, how can you punish sinners? How can you let good people go to hell? That's the question we ask. The question the Bible asks is the exact opposite. The question the Bible is asking is, God, how can you save sinners? How can you let guilty 
people into hell and still be just and still be God. We have no idea the magnitude of the one whom we have sinned against. And we don't realize that if he were to overlook sin, his holiness and justice would be completely compromised and he would no longer be God. So this tension, this question, this dilemma sets the stage for the sufficiency of Christ. We live in a day where many religions exist all around the world and today, probably more than any day before, we have awareness of religions that exist around the world. And many people believe that all of them either lead to the same place in the end or all of them are equally valid. No one is inferior or superior to the others. And the very idea that Jesus alone is the only way to restoration with God is perceived as antiquated, arrogant, narrow-minded, close-minded. Many would even say unjust. Certainly there's not just one right way. But my aim tonight is to show you that once we understand who God is, the holy, just, and gracious creator of all things, once we understand who we are, men and women who have been created by God but corrupted by sin, who have rebelled against God or separated from God and are guilty or dead without God, then we will realize that Jesus alone, over and above every single person and every single philosophy and every single religion, Jesus alone is able to remove our sin and restore us to God. The sufficiency of Christ. So let's think about that thread. Jesus alone, key word here, alone. He alone is able to remove our sin and restore us to God. Now this is the, this is the question on the front of this booklet. How is Jesus unique? Is Jesus unique in a world full of a multiplicity of religious beliefs? Is Jesus really unique? And the gospel, this good news, answers with a resounding yes Jesus is unique. He alone is able to remove our sin and restore us to God for two main reasons. One, because of who he is. So behold the mystery of who Jesus is. On one hand, see Jesus' humanity, his humble character. Almost all people in the world who know anything about Jesus, even secular scholars would say that Jesus was a good man in religious history. People can identify with Jesus. He didn't live a sheltered life. He was a man who was familiar with sorrow and struggles and suffering. People not only identify with him around the world, they admire him around the world. Even here, 21st century people in our culture find much to admire in the Jesus of the first century. He was loving and kind. He championed the cause of the poor and the needy. He stood up against the establishment He made friends with the neglected and the weak and the downtrodden. He hung out with the despised and the rejected. He loved his enemies and he taught others to do the same. Even when he was fiercely and unfairly attacked, he never retaliated. In all of these ways, see his humble character that many around the world acknowledge willingly. But... In the middle of such humility, at the same time, any honest look at Jesus also reveals a surprising egocentricity. He was always talking about himself. I am, I am, I am. Come to me, follow me. He told people, if you'll just come to me, I will will relieve you of all the burdens you have in this life. So at the same time we see his humble humanity, 
also see his deity, hear his extravagant claims. This humble man made extravagant claims about himself. John Stott describes this best. Listen to what he says. Stott writes, one of the most extraordinary things Jesus did in his teaching, and he did it so unobtrusively that many people read the Gospels without even noticing it, was to set himself apart from everybody else. For example, by claiming to be the good shepherd who went out into the desert to seek his lost sheep, he was implying that the world was lost, that he wasn't, and that he could seek and save it. In other words, he put himself in a moral category in which he was alone. Everybody else was in darkness. He was the light of the world. Everybody else was hungry, and he was the bread of life. Everybody else was thirsty, and he could quench their thirst. Everybody else was sinful, and he could forgive their sins. Indeed, on two separate occasions, he did so. And both times, observers were scandalized. So they asked, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And if Jesus claimed authority to forgive the penitent, he also claimed authority to judge the impenitent. Several of his parables implied that he expected to return at the end of history. On that day, he said, he would sit on his glorious throne. All nations would stand before him. And he would separate them one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from his goats. In other words, he would settle their eternal destiny. Thus, Jesus made himself the central figure on the day of judgment. So Stock concludes, these are breathtaking claims. Jesus was by trade a carpenter. Nazareth was an obscure village on the edge of the Roman Empire. Nobody outside Palestine would have even heard of Nazareth. Yet here Jesus of Nazareth was claiming to be the Savior and the Judge of all humankind. Jesus certainly thought he was unique. Which all leads to the very simple conclusion, and this is the classic argument made by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Either these claims of Jesus are true or they are false. Now, Now follow with me. If they're false, if these extraordinary claims of Christ were false and he knew they were false, then Jesus was an outright liar. Or if these claims were false, but Jesus actually thought they were true, then Jesus was an outrageous lunatic, a raving narcissist who actually believed that he was the savior of the world. So either these claims are false and Jesus is an outright liar or an outrageous lunatic, or these claims are true and Jesus is who he said he was, the Lord over all. So Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There is no one like Jesus And the thought that Jesus is God in the flesh, beyond being a mystery that outstretches our minds, is an offense to many, to multitudes of people in the world. I'm thinking in particular of Muslims. This is the most outlandish of all claims. 
I told you before about a group of Muslim men in the Middle East that I was having dinner with one night at a restaurant restaurant and they were saying to me God would never debase himself debase himself by becoming a man I had just been sharing how God has come to us in the person of Jesus and one of the one of the guys Raheel stopped me and said that is not true God would never do that his character is too great and I replied yes Raheel I believe God's character is great and that is precisely why he came to the earth as a man and Raheel said I don't understand I said, well, let me tell you a story and ask you a question. He said, okay. And so I began to tell him a story that in short was a story about how I loved a girl and decided I wanted her to marry me. And I asked Raheel, once I figured out that I loved this girl and wanted her to marry me, do you think, I said to Raheel, do you think I sent a friend to go tell this girl that I loved her and that I wanted her to marry me? And he said, well, no, of course you wouldn't send a friend to do that. I said, why not? He said, well, if you love her and you want her to marry you, then you should go to her and tell her that and ask her that. And I said, precisely, because in matters of love, clearly one must go himself. And then he said, okay. And I said, this is the beauty, the greatness of God. He has not sent this person or that prophet. He's not sent this message or that messenger. In love, God has come to us himself. And Raheel sat back and he smiled and I couldn't help but to think for the first time he was softening his heart to the reality that God displays his greatness not by keeping his distance from us but by coming directly to us. This is the gospel, the good news. God has come to us in the person of Christ. Who he is and then what he has done. This is the second thing that makes him unique and it leads us into these three main facets of this thread. What has Jesus done that makes him unique? Here's what he's done. One, Jesus lived the life we could not live. He lived the life we could not live. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. Underline, memorize this verse. John, the disciple who was with Jesus, writes this letter and he says, you know that he, Jesus, he appeared in order to take away sins. And, and follow this, is a very important phrase. And in him there is no sin. Jesus appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Jesus is a man, but he is set apart from every other man and woman in the history of the world by the fact that he had no sin. He, unlike us, never rebelled against God. Though Jesus was tempted to sin, and this is key, he was fully tempted by sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that we have a Savior, Christ, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Matthew 4 is a passage that we've studied before, giving us a glimpse into how Jesus faced the full throttle of temptation's force. And so he is like us in this way. He identified with us in our temptations. And this is why, just a side note, this is why Jesus didn't die for us when he was just a young child. It's why he didn't come to the world as a, as a man and just go straight to the cross. But he came as a child, born as a child, lived as a man, fully tempted by sin. But unlike any other man or woman, he fully triumphed over sin. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And as a result, so follow this with me, as a result, as a perfect man with no sin, he alone is able to substitute for human sin. Think about it. What man or woman can pay the price for sins 
if he or she is a sinner. A guilty person can't pay the price for guilty people. Because that person is guilty himself or herself. So as perfect man, Jesus was fit to do what no one else, no other religious teacher, no other philosophy, no other man or woman in the history of the world has been fit to do, to stand in the gap, to be a substitute for men and women in their sin. And at the same time, as perfect God, he alone is able to satisfy divine judgment. We've already established that one sin before an infinite God is worthy of infinite separation, infinite condemnation. So only infinite God in the flesh as a person is able to pay the infinite price to people in their sin. He lived the life we could not live, leading to second thing Jesus did that makes him unique. He died the death that we deserve to die. So take a left in your Bible and go back just a couple of chapters to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And while you're turning there, let me just say how this is particularly unique because of the emphasis that Jesus himself and followers of Jesus put upon his death. You look at other religious leaders in the world, their death was the tragic end of their story. And the focus in those religions is on those leaders' lives and their teaching and their example, whoever it may be, whether it's Muhammad dying at 62, Confucius dying at 72, the Buddha dying at 80, Moses dying at 120 years old. These leaders' deaths mark the end of their mission. With Jesus, though, it's completely the opposite. He was constantly talking about his death. He was anticipating his death. The gospel accounts of Jesus' life actually place a disproportionate emphasis on the week, even the hours leading up to his death. In such a way that the central symbol of Christianity for the last 2,000 years has been a what? It's been a cross. A symbol of death. So what is so significant about Jesus' death? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Underline, memorize. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live righteousness by his wounds you have been healed he bore our sins he took the payment of our sins in his body on the tree on the cross so we saw last week that the payment for sin is death we die because we sin Jesus had no sin so why did he die and the gospel tells us the good news tells us that Jesus died in our place for our sins Watch this. Think about it. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. This is the essence of sin. Man asserts himself. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. We say, I'm in charge, not you. My ways, not your ways. Me at the center, not you at the center. This is the essence of our sinfulness. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. So then, follow this. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. The essence of salvation. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. People ask or at least wonder, what's so significant about The cross of Jesus or the death of Christ. What happened there that's so unique, that sets his death apart from every other person in the history of the world, every other religious teacher, even other martyrs, whether it's Christian history or history for other causes, people who've died for a cause. What sets Jesus apart in his death? 
see it. In light of all that we've considered, this divine dilemma, how can God save rebellious sinners who are due his judgment? What's happening? Follow this. At the cross, God expresses his judgment on sin. So God's holy judgment, just judgment, is poured out upon man. At the same time, God endures his judgment against sin. This is God himself in the flesh as a man taking the infinite judgment due sin upon himself. And in the process, God enables salvation for sinners. In holy justice, God does not overlook sin. He fully pours out justice on sin. In holy love, God does not overlook sinners. He pays the price for sin in their place. Is God just towards sin? Absolutely. Look at the cross. Is God loving towards sinners? Absolutely. Look at the cross. Jesus died the death we deserve to die. And as if that is not good enough news, there is more to the story. This is where other religious leaders and teachers end their story, but that is not where Jesus' story ends. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death we deserve to die, and Jesus conquered the enemy we cannot conquer. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. So now to the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Now, I want to be really careful, even while you're turning here, not to imply that Jesus' death was some temporary defeat and victory didn't come until the resurrection, until he rose from the grave. That's not the way the gospel tells this story. Jesus' death in itself was a victory. Colossians 2.15 talks about how at the cross, our debt was nailed to that cross and Jesus triumphed over the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them. So Jesus, Jesus was obeying the Father all the way to the cross. He died in perfect obedience all the way until death, the devil never gaining a foothold in his life. So the cross, in a very real sense, was the victory won. And then the resurrection was that victory vindicated and declared three days later. So that Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Ladies and gentlemen, I am convinced that this, amidst even all that we've talked about, this is where Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. And the Bible even says this. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christians are to be pitied among men. So non-Christian tonight, feel sorry for us if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And don't be upset with us. Feel pity for us because we have based our entire lives on a lie. And we're wasting our lives. At the same time, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then this has huge implications for every single person in this room and every single person in the world. You think about it. If Jesus rose from the dead, I'm not talking resuscitation here. I'm not talking reincarnation. I'm not talking about going unconscious and getting a vision of heaven or hell and coming back to write a best-selling account of it. I'm talking killed by crucifixion, 
on a cross, wrapped up, put in a tomb. And after three days in a tomb, one morning, the stone in front of that tomb is rolled away and he's walking around alive. If that's true, then Jesus is Lord over life and death. Who determines when they live? Right? So we talked about last week, how many of us, before we were born, decided, I think I'd like to live now. Came to life. Or who in this room, when you are dead, when your heart flatlines for a few days, who in this room is going to have the power to say, I think I'm ready to come back to life? If Jesus rose from the dead, he has authority. He is Lord over life and death. He's Lord over sin and Satan. Death is the payment for sin. And Jesus has conquered it. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of sin is death. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power over death. That is the devil. And delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he's Lord over life and death. He's Lord over sin and Satan. And he is Lord over you and me. This is the fundamental confession of the New Testament. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The resurrection shouts loud and clear that Jesus reigns over us supremely and Jesus loves us deeply. He came to live the life we could not live, to die the death we deserve to die and to conquer the enemy we cannot conquer. And he did all of this to save you and me from our sins. There is no one like him. He is absolutely, utterly unique. And his life, death, and resurrection alone are sufficient to remove our sin and restore us to God. The sufficiency of Christ. So then, Christian. How do we weave this gospel thread into the fabric of our everyday conversation? Surely, if we believe this is true, if we believe Jesus is who he says he is and did what the gospel says he did, then we will not stay silent about this. So how do we talk daily? How do we talk about the sufficiency of Christ? And I want to encourage you in these ways. I encourage you to think of other ways. But first and foremost, and this is, the most simple encouragement tonight, and it will seem so obvious that it may not even seem helpful at all. But it's central. First and foremost, I encourage us, intentionally talk about Jesus. Jesus. Talk about Jesus. So outside of Sunday, Christians speak so tragically little about Jesus in the public square. In the office with the friends. You know, every once in a while we're okay to go out on a limb and, and mention God. But as soon as you mention the name of Jesus in a conversation at the office or over lunch or over coffee, doesn't it seem like things just go to a whole nother level of awkwardness? And so we sit back and general vague God talk. 
which certainly is not bad in and of itself, but it's incomplete. Talk about Jesus. I so appreciate one of the stories. A mom riding in a cab with her two-year-old son. And this mom knew that she had an opportunity to share the gospel with this cab driver. But she was sitting, found herself sitting there silent, trying to think about it. Start sharing the gospel and frankly afraid to do so. When all of a sudden her two-year-old son starts singing loudly in the car, Jesus loves me, this I know. Which then leads into conversation with the cab driver. And this mom's She wrote, it was such a humbling moment for me as I was sitting there relying on myself trying to come up with something profound to say and my two-year-old, who's still learning to speak, starts singing about Jesus. So let me encourage you tonight, this week, to be intentional, to go beyond talking about God, to talking about Jesus, to mentioning the name of Jesus, to talking about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Is there anything more important we can speak about? Talking about his life. Look for opportunities to highlight Jesus' example for us. Now I want to be careful here because like we've talked about, a lot of people believe that Jesus was a good moral person but they don't believe he's Savior and Lord and God. So I'm obviously not saying here we need to talk about Jesus just like he was only a good moral person. But at the same time, we would be wise to look for opportunities, situations, circumstances where we have the opportunity to talk about examples from Jesus' life as a man. When I'm talking with people about hardships they're facing, I love to tell them a story about how Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. When I'm talking with somebody who's going through something where they're feeling isolated and alone, like nobody understands what they're going through... I love to tell them the story about Jesus surrounded by a crowd of people. And this one woman who's been hurting for 12 years touches his garment. All of a sudden he stops in this crowd and he turns around and gives her his full attention. A reminder that the God of the universe is intimately familiar with all of our needs. When, when people are walking through relational difficulties, I love to tell them the story about Jesus' conversation with a woman at a well. When someone feels ostracized or rejected for something they've done, to tell them the story of Jesus standing up in the gap for a woman who was about to be stoned. So look for opportunities you have to highlight Jesus' example for us. And look for opportunities to acknowledge Jesus' work in us. And this goes back a, a little to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But credit, not just God, but credit Jesus for anything, everything good in you. I was, I was in the family not long ago where a, a husband was standing over his wife's bed as she was literally dying right in front of him. And I just encouraged him for the strength I saw in him. And he said, he looked back at me and said, anything that is strong in me at this moment is, is there because Christ is in me at this moment. That's good news. That's, that's, that's Jesus' work in us. His life in us. And then look for opportunities to point out Jesus' identification with us. The beauty of his humanity. Draw from the well of Jesus' humanity in encouraging, serving, ministering to others. Jesus is familiar with temptations and trials. He's familiar with sadness and sorrow and suffering. We're not talking to people about a distant Savior who knows nothing about their lives. We're talking to people about a humble King who is intimately aware of everything we face in our lives. Are people around you hurting? Jesus hurt. 
Are people around you broken? Jesus identifies with them in their brokenness. People around you feel rejected? Jesus was rejected. People around you feel alone? Jesus was alone. Hebrews 4 talks about we don't have a Savior who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So when we or when others are going through times of weakness, talk about Jesus' identification with us. Then talking about his death. First, I want to encourage you, never stop emphasizing the gravity of sin. We talked about this more last week, the sinfulness of man, but I want to reiterate it here because people will never see their need for Christ until they see this divine human dilemma that we've talked about. And our tendency, follow this, our tendency in our day, in the church and as Christians, our tendency is to minimize the severity of sin and its effects. We don't want to offend I don't want to go too far, so we talk lightly about sin, but follow this. Here's the deal. Whenever we minimize sin, we will inevitably minimize the cross. Whenever we take a casual approach to sin in conversation, we will lighten the significance of the cross in that same conversation. If we want people to see how lovely the cross is, then we must talk about how deadly sin is. I was talking to a, a, a corporate group not long ago, and I started talking about the severity of sin, and I just kind of got going and even started talking about hell and the reality of hell. And Later I was kicking myself, thinking maybe I shouldn't have gone that far in that setting. And then a couple of days later, somebody who was in that corporate meeting approaches me and said, I, I've got some questions about some of the things you mentioned. And I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. And we sit down and we start talking about those questions and by God's grace, over the days to come, God draws that person to faith in Christ. So never stop talking, emphasizing gravity of sin. But don't stop then. There, never stop talking about your gratitude for Christ. So sin is obviously not the end of the story. So speak, speak about your gratitude for what Jesus has done on the cross. Do people, do people you work with Know how thankful you are for the cross of Jesus Christ. The people you live with and around in your neighborhood, you associate with, you hang out with, do they know how thankful you are for the cross of Jesus where he took all of your sin upon himself in order to restore you to God? Look for opportunities this week to share with somebody how thankful you are that Christ died for you. And then, don't stop there. How Christ rose from the dead, talking about his resurrection, point to Jesus' resurrection by speaking about difficulties with hope. So when we face marital difficulties or relational difficulties or job difficulties or physical difficulties, when we talk like there's no hope in these difficulties, we are undercutting the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of hope. There's a confidence that fills our speech when we're faced with trials. We have the opportunity to encourage others in trials. We never, ever speak like we are hopeless. You might say, well, what if there's not really any hope for this circumstance, for getting over this cancer or getting through this obstacle? And this is where I want to remind you, to remind others that our hope is not ultimately in this life. That's the whole point. Jesus has conquered death, and we know that this world is not all there is. We have a hope that transcends death. 
Realize this. In all of our lives, every single one of our lives, difficulties wake us up to the reality of our mortality, to the emptiness of the things of this world, even the best things of this world. And ultimately, difficulties in this world create in us all a longing for hope that transcends this world, a hope that is ultimately found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So speak about difficulties with hope. And then much like we talked about last week, speak about death with joy. The gospel says we rejoice in death because Christ has conquered death. So we don't worry about death. You believe that? You live like that? You talk like that? You will be speaking gospel. You talk about cancer with authentic joy. You talk about pain with authentic joy. You talk about risking your life to go to the nations with authentic joy. People start wondering what's up. I'm not talking about a flippant happiness here. I'm talking about an abiding sense of confidence and joy. Because you know, you know that because Christ is risen, you know that death is gain. So picture here the person, we'll call him Paul, who thinks that all religious roads end up in the same destination. All religious roads are equally valid. So Christianity works for you, Jesus works for you, that's great. But that doesn't mean Christianity should work for everybody, Jesus is for everybody. It's extremely common across our culture, the world. So this is where I want to encourage you as followers of Jesus, when you're talking with pluralist Paul, to highlight the all-important distinctions between taste, tradition, and truth. Taste, tradition, and truth. Here's what I mean by that. Taste. We live in a world and a culture where religious beliefs are regarded as mere matters of personal taste. Whatever works best for you. Religion is a matter of preference, so choose whichever one you like. Just like you choose your favorite flavor of ice cream, you choose your flavor of faith. Or religion is a matter of tradition, where you're born, what your particular culture finds appropriate. So if you're born in India, you're likely Hindu. If you're born in Arab, you're likely Muslim. If you're born in Birmingham, you're likely Christian. Religion... Faith is merely a matter of tradition. So there's this pluralistic idea that all religions are equally the same and you should just pick whatever works best for you, even if that's atheism for that matter, based on your tradition or your particular taste. But what's lost in all of this looking at religion and faith in terms of taste and tradition is looking at religion and faith in terms of truth. Because all of these religions cannot be true at the same time. And so some, actually many, not most people are basing their life and their faith on a lie. This is, this is obvious. Just think about it. Either God does exist, which Christianity and many other religions would say, or God doesn't exist, which, which atheists would claim or agnostics, agnostics would lean toward. So either God does exist or God doesn't exist. That's, that's not a matter of taste or tradition. That's a matter of truth. And one of these groups is basing their life on a lie. Think about Islam and Christianity. Did Jesus die on the cross? Obviously, Christianity says yes. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. But Muslims say that Jesus did not, never died on the cross. Some Muslims say that it actually wasn't Jesus who went to the cross. It was somebody who looked a lot like Jesus who went to the cross and died there. Other Muslims say that it was Jesus who went to the cross, but he, wasn't, he didn't die there. He was just hurt really, 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 really bad. And they took him down from the cross and so he, he didn't die on the cross, and therefore he didn't rise from the grave. Now, I'm not even asking you at this point to say which one is true or false. Let's just come to the realization they can't both be true. Either he did die and rise from the grave, or he didn't die and rise from the grave. If he didn't die and rise from the grave, 
then, like we've talked about, we're to be pitied among men. We are living based on a lie. We are fools, 1 Corinthians 15 says. However, if he did die and rise from the grave, and that has huge implications for Muslims and every other person in the world. And that is an issue of truth. Eternity is dependent on what's true here, not on where we're born or what we prefer. So forgive me for stating the obvious, but certainly where we will spend eternity is a more important decision than whether we will eat chocolate or vanilla ice cream tonight. So we humbly highlight this reality and humbly encourage people to explore what is true. Whatever faith position somebody takes is going to be exactly that. It's going to be a faith position. You're either going to put your faith in God or no God. And either one of those is going to involve a leap of faith. You're going to either either believe in the resurrection of Jesus or not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And either one of them is going to involve a leap of faith. This is where I I say to my non-Christian friends, the burden of proof when it comes to the resurrection, for example, is not just on Christians. There's a burden of proof there for non-Christians as well. Because there's no question, even among the most secular of scholars, that around 2,000 years ago, an entirely new religious community and movement was formed almost overnight. And immediately, hundreds of people started claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. They'd eaten with him and drank with him and seen him, even if it meant when they said that they would lose their life. And a fast-growing movement of people started from that that now makes up around a third of the world. So how do you explain that? If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then there's some kind of burden of proof to provide some other plausible account for how this whole picture started. But in, in all of these discussions, the point is that faith is not merely a matter of taste, which puts faith on the level of flavor. It's not a matter of tradition, which assumes that just because you were born in a certain place, what people around you believe what is right. No, it's a matter of truth. So this non-Christian friend of mine had said to me, David, we're, we're born into a culture where there's a lot of churches But if we were born into a culture where there's a lot of mosques or temples, then we'd be Muslims or Hindus, and that'd be okay. Besides the fact, this is what he said to me, besides the fact that Jesus is more accepted in our culture, why should I be a Christian? That's an honest, good question. And the answer is clear, because Jesus is true. And I said to him, would you be willing to walk a journey where we explore the truth claims of Christ. And he said he would. And that's where we, we walk through. And just good resources that are helpful in this kind of journey. Uh, John Stott, which I quoted earlier from a little book he wrote called Why I Am a Christian. Really helpful book. Basic Christianity by John Stott. Tim Keller's Reason for God. Hugely helpful resource. And so walking through a journey. And at the end of that journey, my friend says, I see now and I believe Jesus is true and I'm trusting him to save me from my sins. So highlight the all-important distinctions between taste, tradition, and truth. And then, what about, what about talking with open-minded Olivia? So the sincere person who says, if God is loving, then certainly he would not send people to hell. Or if God is loving, why would there only be one way to him? Through Jesus. And all of these other ways, all these other religions are wrong. People even say, God is more loving and more creative than Christians give him credit for. Whenever well-meaning non-Christian friends or family say things like this, I always try to explain the pursuing love of God in the perceived narrowness of the gospel. Explain the pursuing love of God 
in the perceived narrowness of the gospel. In other words, I try to put their sincere questions in perspective. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody where you're going in-depth into some deep issues and you spend hours, maybe even days or weeks in this conversation? You get to this point and somebody just kind of walks up at this point who hasn't been there in the whole conversation and just joins in and starts bringing up questions that you discussed hours ago or days or weeks ago and you want to say, who invited you into this conversation? Because you've already, you've already seen that and you've got a perspective here that's based on discussion that they missed out on. This is where we, we need to realize that when we come even to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we're coming in at this point of a story that began a long way before this. So I, so I say to my non-Christian friends, even those who would say they don't believe in God, I, would, I say, well, imagine that there is a God, which is at least possible. And any, anybody would admit that it's possible that God exists. I mean, if, if I'm going to say that something does not exist in this room, then that means I have to have searched out all possibilities that it does exist in this room. And that's the only way I can say, okay, no, it doesn't exist in this room. So if you say God does not exist, that means you have to have searched all knowledge to see if God exists. And if you have searched all knowledge, then that means you have all knowledge. And by definition, that makes you God. And you deny your own divinity with your own statement that there is no God. So at least, at least it's possible that in the knowledge that exists out there, there's a God. So let's just start there. Imagine, I know this is a big imagine for many. But imagine there is a God who is infinitely good and infinitely loving and all that is love and all that is good is summed up in this God. And imagine he, this God, created a world full of trees and hills and mountains and valleys and seas and oceans and skies and stars and plants and animals to display his beauty and his grandeur. And imagine, after creating all of these things, that he created a man and a woman. He breathed life into them. And he said to them, you are my prized creation, over and above everything else I've created. I've created you to reflect my image so that you might know me and enjoy me, walk with me, and experience my love on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis forever. And imagine this creator said to his creation, if you turn against me. If you disobey me, you will experience death. But I don't want you to experience death. I want you to experience life forever with me. And imagine this creation says, yes, but then one day, for no just reason, this this creation decides our creator doesn't know what's best for us. He's not good. And so, for no just reason, they disobey him and turn away from him. And imagine this creator comes to his creation and says, I told you that if you did that, you would experience death. But imagine this creator had in motion a plan to make it possible for this creation to still live forever with him. Imagine this creator took some of the people that he had created and called them to himself and said, I'm going to show my blessing and my grace and my mercy upon you in a way that you will make my blessing known to all all the peoples of the earth, so that everyone knows my goodness through relationship with you being a conduit of my blessing to all the earth. And imagine this, created this group of people, they're called Israel in the Old Testament, said, yes, 
we, we will follow you. We will worship you. They enter into almost like a marriage relationship with the Creator, a covenant with the Creator that says we will follow you, we will worship you, and we will fulfill your purposes in creation for your glory, your spread of your goodness. But imagine this people, just as soon as they had said, yes, we're with you, almost like it was wedding night, day after, they turn aside from their Creator and say, we're going to worship other gods instead of you. And they bow down and they worship golden calves and other idols that they fashion with their own hands instead of their creator. And imagine after that, this creator sending messengers to this people. Messengers that bring news of his mercy and his grace and his love, saying, if you will turn from your sin yourselves and you'll trust in the creator, he will forgive your sins. He will will remember them no more. He will bring you back to himself. And imagine this creation taking these messengers from the creator and imprisoning them, stoning them, sawing them in half. Imagine, after all of that, this creator committing the ultimate act of condescension and becoming a part of creation himself. Living among his creation, loving his creation, healing his creation, bringing good news of the creator's love and mercy for anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in the creator's love will be restored to the creator. And imagine the creation taking the creator himself in the flesh and mocking him, beating him, scourging him, spitting in his face, and nailing him to a cross in the most cruel form of execution they could imagine. And imagine, in light of all of that, this creator saying to anyone in this room and anyone in all of creation, if you will simply believe and trust in the love that I have for you, I will forgive you of all your sins. I will remove them all. I will wipe the slate clean. No matter who you are, what you've done, I will wipe the slate clean if you will simply trust in my love for you what I did now if if that's the story then doesn't it seem a bit bold to look into the face of this creator and say why only one way thought you were loving Couldn't you be more creative than that? No, when you you see the whole story, you realize that the question is not why is there only one way. The question is why is there any way at all? And you realize that the issue is not how many ways there are anyway. The issue is not how many ways there are. If there were a thousand ways, we would want a thousand and one. The issue is not how many ways there are. The issue is our autonomy. We want to make our own way to God. And the beauty of the gospel is that God has made his way to us. So tell well-meaning, open-minded Olivia that there is a pursuing love behind her perceived narrowness in the gospel. And then nominal Nancy And this is huge, particularly in our culture where it sometimes seems like everybody says they're a Christian, but being a Christian often involves just nominal adherence to Christ. And we're going to talk next week about sharing the gospel. What does it really mean to be a Christian, to become a Christian? But for now, we live in a day where people privatize their faith. 
Much like we've talked about with pluralist Paul. If Jesus works for you, that's great for you. But don't try to push Jesus on others. Just keep Jesus to yourself. That's the mantra in our day. And many supposed Christians live with the exact same philosophy. And this is where I, I want to say to you, Christian, and I want to encourage you to say to others, point out how a privatized faith in a resurrected Christ is practically impossible. It is impossible to believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the only way to be restored to God, to believe this, and then to say nothing to people around you about it. It makes no sense. It's like knowing where the water is in the desert and not telling anyone where to find it. Privatized Christianity is an oxymoron. It doesn't add up. Nominal Christianity is impossible. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if, if false, is of no importance. If true, is of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. So I encourage you, Christian, to intentionally speak this week about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and see what God does. See what God does. And at the same time, I want to encourage every non-Christian to see God's love for you. God loves you so much that he sent his son to live the life you could not live. To die the death that you deserve to die. And to conquer the enemy that you cannot conquer. I implore you to trust in his love for you to trust tonight for the first time in the sufficiency of Christ on your behalf. At the cross, God expresses his judgment upon sin, endures his judgment against sin, and enables salvation for sinners. If you've enjoyed the Thread series so far, you'll want to download the free discussion guide as well as the Threads booklet, both on our website, Radical.net. Many in our culture define faith as believing something without evidence. But is this the Bible's definition of faith? Next week, David will continue the Thread series with a message entitled, The Necessity of Faith. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. We'll see you next week.